Chapter Twenty Five of My Reminiscences by Rabindranath Tagore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five, England. After six months thus spent in Ahmedabad, we started for England. In an unlucky moment, I began to write letters about my journey to my relatives and to the Bharati. Now it is beyond my power to call them back. These were nothing but the outcome of youthful bravado. At that age, the mind refuses to admit that its greatest pride is in its power to understand, to accept, to respect, and that modesty is the best means of enlarging its domain. Admiration and praise are looked upon as a sign of weakness or surrender, and the desire to cry down and hurt and demolish with argument gives rise to this kind of intellectual fireworks. These attempts of mine to establish my superiority by revilement might have occasioned my amusement today had not their want of straightness and common courtesy been too painful. From my earliest years I had had practically no commerce with the outside world. To be plunged in this state at the age of seventeen into the midst of the social sea of England would have justified considerable misgivings as to my being able to keep afloat. But as my sister-in-law happened to be in Brighton with her children, I weathered the first shock of it under her shelter. Winter was then approaching. One evening, as we were chatting round the fireside, the children came running to us with the exciting news that it had been snowing. We at once went out. It was bitingly cold, the sky filled with white moonlight, the earth covered with white snow. It was not the face of nature familiar to me, but something quite different, like a dream. Everything near seemed to have receded far away, leaving the still white figure of an ascetic steeped in deep meditation. The sudden revelation on the mere stepping outside a door of such wonderful, such immense beauty had never before come upon me. My days passed merrily under the affectionate care of my sister-in-law and in boisterous rompings with the children. They were greatly tickled at my curious English pronunciation, and though in the rest of their games I could wholeheartedly join, this I failed to see the fun of. How could I explain to them that there was no logical means of distinguishing between the sound of A in warm and oh, in worm, unlucky that I was, I had to bear the brunt of the ridicule, which was more properly the due of the vagaries of English spelling. I became quite an adept in inventing new ways to keeping the children occupied and amused. This art has stood me in good stead many a time thereafter, and its usefulness for me is not yet over. But I no longer feel in myself the same unbounded profusion of ready contrivance that was the first opportunity i had for giving my heart to children and it had all the freshness and overflowing exuberance of such a first gift but i had not set out on this journey to exchange a home beyond the seas for the one on this side the idea was that i should study law and come back a barrister so one day i was put into a public school in brighton the first thing the headmaster said after scanning my features was, What a splendid head you have! This detail lingers in my memory 
because she who at home was an enthusiast in her self-imposed duty of keeping my vanity in check had impressed on me that my cranium footnote there was a craze of phrenology at the time end of footnote and features generally compared with that of many other were barely of medium order i hope the reader will not fail to count it to my credit that i implicitly believed her and inwardly deplored the parsimony of the creator in the matter of my making on many another occasion finding myself estimated by my english acquaintances differently from what i had been accustomed to be by her i was led to seriously worry my mind over the divergence in the standard of taste between the two countries one thing in brighton school seemed very wonderful the other boys were not at all rude to me on the contrary they would thrust oranges or apples into my pockets and run away i can only ascribe this uncommon behaviour of theirs to my being a foreigner i was not long in the school either but that was no fault of the school mr tarak palit footnote lately sir tarak palit a lifelong friend of the writer's second brother end of footnote was then in england he could see that this was not the way for me to get on and prevailed on my brother to allow him to take me to london and leave me there to myself in a lodging house the lodging selected faced the regent gardens it was then the depth of winter there was not a leaf on the row of trees in front of which stood staring at the sky with his craggy snow-covered branches a sight which chilled my very bones for the newly arrived stranger there can hardly be a more cruel place than london in winter i knew no one near by nor could i find my way about the days of sitting alone at a window gazing at the outside world came back into my life but the scene in this case was not attractive there was a frown on its countenance the sky turbid the light lacking lustre like a dead man's eye the horizon shrunk upon itself with never an inviting smile from a broad hospitable world the room was but scantily furnished but there happened to be a harmonium which after the daylight came to its untimely end i used to play upon according to my fancy sometimes indians would come to see me and though my acquaintance with them was but slight when they rose to leave i felt inclined to hold them back by their coat-tails while living in these rooms there was one who came to teach me latin his gaunt figure with its worn-out clothing seemed no more able than the naked trees to withstand the winter's grip i do not know what his age was but he clearly looked older than his years some days in the course of our lessons he would suddenly be at loss for some word and look vacant and ashamed his people at home counted him a crank he had become possessed of a theory he believed that in each age some one dominant idea is manifested in every human society in all parts of the world and though it may take different shapes under different degrees of civilization it is at bottom one and the same nor is such an idea taken from one by another by any process of adoption for this truth holds good even where there is no intercourse his great preoccupation was the gathering and recording of facts to prove this theory and while so engaged 
his home lacked food his body clothes his daughters had but scant respect for his theory and were perhaps constantly upbraiding him for his infatuation some days one could see from his face that he had lighted upon some new proof and that his thesis had correspondingly advanced on these occasions i would broach the subject and wax enthusiastic at his enthusiasm on other days he would be steeped in gloom as if his burden was too heavy to bear then would our lessons halt at every step his eyes wander away into empty space and his mind refused to be dragged into the pages of the first latin grammar i felt keenly for the poor body-starved theory-burdened soul and though i was under no delusion as to the assistance i got in my latin i could not make up my mind to get rid of him this pretence of learning latin lasted as long as i was at these lodgings when on the eve of leaving them i offered to settle his dues he said piteously i have done nothing and only wasted your time i cannot accept any payment from you it was with great difficulty that i got him at last to take his fees though my latin tutor had never ventured to trouble me with the proofs of his theory yet up to this day i do not disbelieve it i am convinced that the minds of men are connected through some deep-lying continuous medium and that a disturbance in one part by it is secretly communicated to others mr pallet next placed me in a house of a coach named barker he used to lodge and prepare students for their examinations except his mild little wife there was not a thing with any pretensions to attractiveness about this household one can understand how such a tutor can get pupils for these poor creatures do not often get the chance of making a choice but it is painful to think of the conditions under which such men get wives mrs barker had attempted to console herself with a pet dog but when barker wanted to punish his wife he tortured the dog so that her affection for the unfortunate animal only made an enlargement of her field of sensibility from these surroundings when my sister-in-law sent for me to torquay in devonshire i was only too glad to run off to her i cannot tell how happy i was by the hills there the sea the flower-covered meadows the shades of pine-wood and my two little restlessly playful companions i was nevertheless sometimes tormented by questionings as to why when my eyes were so surfeited with beauty my mind saturated with joy and my leisure-filled days crossing over the limitless blue of space freighted with unalloyed happiness there should be no call of poetry to me so one day i went off to the rocky shore armed with the manuscript book and umbrella to fulfil my poet's destiny the spot i selected was of undoubted beauty for that did not depend on my rhyme or fancy there was a flat bit of overhanging rock reaching out as with perpetual eagerness over the waters rocked on the foam-flecked waves of the liquid blue in front the sunny sky slept smilingly to its lullaby behind the shade of the fringe of pines lay spread like a slipped-off garment of some languorous wood nymph enthroned on that seat of stone i wrote a poem magna Thari, the sunken boat i might have believed to-day that it was good had i taken the precaution of sinking it then in the sea but such consolation is not open to me 
for it happens to be existing in the body and though banished from my published works a writ might yet cause it to be produced the messenger of duty however was not idle again came its call and i returned to london this time i found refuge in the household of dr scott one evening with bag and baggage i invaded his home only the white-haired doctor his wife and their eldest daughter were there the two younger girls alarmed at the incursion of an indian stranger had gone off to stay with a relative i think they came back home only after they got the news of my not being dangerous in a very short time i became like one of the family mrs scott treated me as a son and the heartfelt kindness i got from her daughters is rare even from one's own relations one thing struck me when living in this family that human nature is everywhere the same we are fond of saying and i also believed that the devotion of an indian wife to her husband is something unique and not to be found in europe but i at least was unable to discern any difference between mrs scott and an ideal indian wife she was entirely wrapped up in her husband with her modest means there was no fussing about of too many servants and mrs scott attended to every detail of her husband's wants herself before he came back home from his work of an evening she would arrange his armchair and woolen slippers before the fire with her own hands she would never allow herself to forget for a moment the things he liked or the behaviour which pleased him she would go over the house every morning with their only maid from attic to kitchen and the brass rods on the stairs and the door knobs and fittings would be scrubbed and polished till they shone again over and above this domestic routine there were the many calls of social duty after getting through all her daily duties she would join the zest in our evening readings and music for it is not the least of the duties of a good housewife to make real the gaiety of the leisure hour some evenings i would join the girls in a table-turning seance we would place our fingers on a small tea-table and it would go capering about the room it got to be so that whatever we touched began to quake and quiver mrs scott did not quite like all this she would sometimes gravely shake her head and say she had her doubts about it being right she bore it bravely however not liking to put the damper on our youthful spirits but one day when we put our hands on dr scott's chimney-pot to make it turn that was too much for her she rushed up in a great state of mind and forbade us to touch it she could not bear the idea of a satan having anything to do even for a moment with her husband's headgear in all her actions her reverence for her husband was the one thing that stood out the memory of her sweet self-abnegation makes it clear to me that the ultimate perfection of all womanly love is to be found in reverence that where no extravagant cause has hampered its true development women's love naturally grows into worship where the appointments of luxury are in profusion and frivolity tarnishes both day and night this love is degraded and woman's nature finds not the joy of its perfection i spent some months here then it was time for my brother to return home and my father wrote to me to accompany him i was delighted at the prospect the light of my country the sky of my country had been silently calling me when i said good-bye 
mrs scott took me by the hand and wept why did you come to us she said if you must go so soon that household no longer exists in london some of the members of the doctor's family have departed to other world others have scattered in places unknown to me but it will always live in my memory one winter's day as i was passing through a street in turnbridge wells i saw a man standing on the roadside his bare toes were showing through his gaping boots his breast was partly uncovered he said nothing to me perhaps because begging was forbidden but he looked up at my face just for a moment the coin i gave him was perhaps more valuable than he expected for after i had gone on a bit he came after me and said sir you had given me a gold piece by mistake with which he offered to return it to me i might not have particularly remembered this but for a similar thing which happened on another occasion when i first reached the torquay railway station a porter took my luggage to the cab outside after searching my purse for a small change in vain i gave him half a crown as the cab started after a while he came running after us shouting to the cabman to stop i thought to myself that finding me to be such an innocent he had hit upon some excuse for demanding more as the cab stopped he said you must have mistaken a half crown piece for a penny sir i cannot say that i have never been cheated while in england but not in any way which it would be fair to hold in remembrance what grew chiefly upon me rather was the conviction that only those who are trustworthy know how to trust i was an unknown foreigner and could have easily evaded payment with impunity yet no london shopkeeper ever mistrusted me during the whole period of my stay in england i was mixed up in a farcical comedy which i had to play out from start to finish i happened to get acquainted with the widow of some departed high anglo-indian official she was good enough to call me by the pet name ruby some indian friend of hers had composed a doleful poem in english in memory of her husband it was needless to expatiate on its poetic merit or felicity of diction as my ill-luck would have it the composer had indicated that the dirge was to be chanted to the mode beha so the widow one day entreated me to sing it to her thus like the silly innocent that i was i weakly acceded there was unfortunately no one there but i who could realize the atrociously ludicrous way in which the beha mode combined with those absurd verses the widow seemed intensely touched to hear the indian's lament for her husband sung to its native melody i thought that there the matter ended but that was not to be i frequently met the widowed lady at different social gatherings and when after dinner we joined the ladies in the drawing-room she would ask me to sing that beha every one else would anticipate some extraordinary specimen of indian music and would add their entreaties to hers then from her pocket would come forth printed copies of that fateful composition and my ears began to redden and tingle at last with bowed head and quavering voice i would have to make a beginning but too keenly conscious that to no one else in the room but me was this performance sufficiently heart-rending at the very end amidst much suppressed tittering there would come a chorus of 
thank you very much how interesting and in spite of its being winter i would perspire all over who would have predicted at my birth or at his death what a severe blow to me would be the demise of this estimable anglo-indian then for a time i was living with dr scott and attending lectures at the university college i lost touch with the widow she was in a suburban locality some distance away from london and i frequently got letters from her inviting me there but my dread of that dirge kept me from accepting these invitations at length i got a pressing telegram from her i was on my way to college when this telegram reached me and my stay in england was then about to come to its close i thought to myself i ought to see the widow once more before my departure and so yielded to her importunity instead of coming home from college i went straight to the railway station it was a horrible day bitterly cold snowing and foggy the station i was bound for was the terminus of the line so i felt quite easy in mind and did not think it worth while to inquire about the time of arrival all the station platforms were coming on the right hand side and in the right hand corner seat i had ensconced myself reading a book it had already become so dark that nothing was visible outside one by one the other passengers got down at their destinations we reached and left the station just before the last one then the train stopped again but there was nobody to be seen nor any lights or any platform the mere passenger has no means of divining why trains should sometimes stop at the wrong times and places so giving up the attempt i went on with my reading then the train began to move backwards there seems to be no accounting for railway eccentricity thought i as i once more returned to my book but when we came right back to the previous station i could remain indifferent no longer when are we getting to m i inquired at the station you are just coming from there was the reply where are we going now then i asked thoroughly flurried to london i thereupon understood that this was a shuttle train on inquiring about the next train to m i was informed that there were no more trains that night and in reply to my next question i gathered that there was no inn within five miles i had left home after breakfast at ten in the morning and had had nothing since when abstinence is the only choice an ascetic frame of mind comes easy i buttoned up my thick overcoat to the neck and seating myself under a platform lamp went on with my reading the book i had with me was spencer's data of ethics then recently published i consoled myself with the thought that i might never get another such opportunity of concentrating my whole attention on such a subject after a short time a porter came and informed me that a special was running and would be in half an hour i felt so cheered up by the news that i could not go on any longer with the data of ethics where i was due at seven i arrived at length at nine what is this ruby asked the hostess whatever have you been doing with yourself i was unable to take much pride in the account of my wonderful adventures which i gave her dinner was over nevertheless as my misfortune was hardly my fault i did not expect condign punishment 
especially as the dispenser was a woman but all that the widow of the high anglo-indian official said to me was come along ruby have a cup of tea i never was a tea drinker but in the hope that it might be of some assistance in allaying my consuming hunger i managed to swallow a cup of strong decoction with a couple of dry biscuits when i at length reached the drawing-room i found a gathering of elderly ladies and among them one pretty young american who was engaged to the nephew of my hostess and seemed busy going through the usual premarital love passages let's have some dancing said my hostess i was neither in mood nor bodily condition for that exercise but it is the docile who achieves the most impossible things in this world so though the dance was primarily got up for the benefit of the engaged couple i had to dance with the ladies of considerably advanced age with only the tea and biscuits between myself and starvation but my sorrows did not end here where are you putting up for the night asked my hostess this was a question for which i was not prepared while i stared at her speechless she explained that as the local inn would close at midnight i had better betake myself thither without further delay hospitality however was not entirely wanting for i had not to find the inn unaided a servant showing me the way there with a lantern at first i thought this might prove a blessing in disguise and at once proceeded to make enquiries for food flesh fish or vegetable hot or cold anything i was told that drinks i could have in any variety but nothing to eat then i looked to slumber for forgetfulness but there seemed to be no room even in her world embracing lap the sandstone floor of the bedroom was icy cold an old bedstead and worn-out washstand being its only furniture in the morning the anglo-indian widow sent for me to breakfast i found a cold repast spread out evidently the remains of last night's dinner a small portion of this lukewarm or cold offered to me last night could not have hurt any one while my dancing might then have been less like the agonized wrigglings of a landed carp after breakfast my hostess informed me that the lady for whose delectation i had been invited to sing was ill in bed and that i would have to serenade her from her bedroom door i was made to stand upon the staircase landing pointing to the closed door the widow said that's where she is and i gave voice to the behar dirge facing the mysterious unknown on the other side of what happened to the invalid as a result i have yet received no news after my return to london i had to expiate in bed the consequence of my fatuous complaisance dr scott's girls implored me on my conscience not to take this as a sample of english hospitality it was the effect of india's salt they protested end of chapter twenty five read by lambda